Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. First Chronicles chapter 12. Hard to believe we're in chapter 12 and this is only our, is this our third study in Chronicles? We're moving at pace. Chapters 1 through 8 gave us the genealogies of Adam to Israel. Chapter 9 gave us all the priests, the Levites, the Nethanim serving in Jerusalem at the temple. Chapter 10 has Saul dying. Chapter 11 has David being made king. And we got to look at David's mighty men last week. So David's on the throne that establishes Israel. Saul squandered his chance. The difference for the writer of Chronicles is that David was faithful, Saul was not. And we're going to see that throughout Chronicles. The focus is showing, the focus on the army shows that kingdoms are built with groups of people. And this is important for Ezra as he's trying to convince people to leave the comfort of Babylon and come build Israel again. In that they need a group of people to do that. It's not just Nehemiah that's going to get that done. It's not just Ezra. They need a group of people. So there's a coronation and establishing of Jerusalem as the capital and this emphasis on this group of people around David. And that's where we pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left hand in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. Ziklag is a season where David lived with the Philistines. Remember, he was running from Saul, took up residence with the Philistines, told the Philistines he'd fight with them. When it came time to fight Israel, the Philistines didn't trust David. So he sent them home. They go home. Ziklag's the town that got raided by the Amalekites. And they had to go get their women and children back. The mighty men that are with them, we saw last week, we looked at them a little bit. They're skilled men, they're capable, they're valuable men. A loss for Saul is a shift towards David with these each of these people that came over. It says here that they were able to fight with the right hand and the left. That seems like an odd thing today. But to be right-handed or left-handed means you can take these men and put them in any military unit. Because with slingers, if you're slinging with your right hand, you kind of want the slinger next to you to be slinging with his right hand too. So you'd line up all these slingers and they kind of need to all be using the same side so that they can stand next to each other and not hit each other in the head. So to have right-handed and left-handed slingers, you'd put them in separate military units and you want them the same. So when you have these ambidextrous soldiers, you could put them in any unit and fill the ranks, which was really helpful. They shot bows and arrows and they sh threw stones. The other piece with throwing stones is it make it, it definitely we're going back in time. Like these are lower technology military weapons. But you should know something about these stones. And we talked a little bit about this with David and Goliath. These stones moved as fast as most bullets do today with much more weight and mass to them than the typical bullet. Stones like this have been found buried inches in the wall rock as they've done archaeological digs on sites that had been under combat. So these stones, were they're, they're properly the first use of the word bullet, was applied to a rock that was shot out of a sling. 
The longer the sling, the longer the arm, the faster these things went, and they went with mass. So they were devastating. So the fact that Goliath was wearing a helmet is neither here nor there. If you get hit square with one of these things, it's going to puncture, it's going to penetrate, it's going to be deadly. So they're making a point here that Benjaminites were part of the crew. Verse 2, they're part of Benjamin's tribe which is Saul's brethren. So they're kind of pointing this out twice and in case you didn't get it. If you're coming back to, to Israel, you're not excluded because you're part of Saul's crew. And we've seen Saul's crew get mentioned here now a couple times. And the point of the writers is this, is that just because you're a descendant of Saul or you're associated with Benjamin doesn't mean you're not part of Israel. So Judges 20 treats this crew of mighty men as just kind of this a whole unit of Israel. And the divisions in Israel weren't totally tribal, they were ideological. In other words, there were men of Benjamin that fought with David. And that's important because it does, just because you're in a tribe doesn't mean you're on the outs or on the ins with the nation of Israel. It was a decision that each people made individually. And the tendency of humanity is to split people up by me versus them. Us versus those people. And if you're in that tribe, you're like this. And we forget the nuances that there are people in that tribe that are on both sides of that fence. And we do that today in America. We say there's red states and blue states. But in both of those states, there's people with the opposite political bent that live in those states. The states aren't entirely red and they're not entirely blue. But human nature is to summatively say all Benjamites were against David. And the point of this first two verses is, no, there were some Benjamites that fought with David. And politically speaking, they had a decision to make. It didn't matter what tribe they were from. Then in verses 3, and again, I'm going to move through some of these names. Verses 3 through 6 gives you the names of these people and the leadership structure that it's organized, authorities put in place, it's understood and it's written down and it's in writing. The use of the phrase 30s there, 30 is like a platoon or a unit. It's not an exact number that gets used, but when they say soldiers over 30 or, or groups of 30, that was kind of a military unit that gets used. Um, the Romans, for instance, have centurions that are over a century of soldiers, which is 100 soldiers. Uh, we had platoons in the U.S. military, and I think a platoon is, is it 12 men, 16 men, something like that? Small fighting units that learned how to live and work and fight together. In a military campaign, these are kind of brothers in arms, and the Israelites organized by 30s. Verse 8, some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle the shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions. And they were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. They could run fast, and they had a face like a lion, which means they're not scared of anything. Lions don't typically get scared of things. They eat things. So they're fighters. They're from east of the Jordan. And we see these kind of references indicating that these tribes, Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, they've been fighting for their lives for 400 years. They're tough. They're trained. These are soldier soldiers. And we get a story about them showing exactly how tough they actually were. Um, they're people of competence, I think is the point in this chapter, that are then fighting with David, but they're not the rough motley crew of the mighty men that we saw last week. They're not coming out of criminal backgrounds and on the run. These are properly trained soldiers that are defecting over to David's side. 
If you go to verse 14, you get past some more of those names. These were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army. At the least was over 100, the greatest was over 1,000. Not only were they competent trained men, but they actually were leaders of men. Whole units defected from Saul's army and joined David's force. Units of various sizes. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it overflowed the banks as they all put, they put to flight all those in the valley to the east and to the west. Okay, these Gadites were tough and they give you a little example of just how tough. First of all, they crossed the Jordan. Not easy to do. It's a swift running river, but they, they also crossed it and they point out in the first month, this is the spring. This is when the river is at its highest and most for, forceful point in the year. So it'd be like if we said they crossed the Mississippi right after the snow melted, right? This is when you have those rivers moving fast. So it would take a healthy, athletic male to cross that river and not die. But then they add this, that it overflowed its banks, so it's actually wider than it normally is, and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and the west. They actually fought their way to the river, then crossed it, then they fought their way on the other side too. So there's nothing like a group of guys that say, we're convicted, it's time for us to go and join David, and they're enthusiastic about joining David. Like, they're in on this, and they're not... They're, they're so anxious to do it that they're fighting their way to David to get there. They're not, these are not just like roughshod people coming to join the army in this chapter. So they're leaders, they're organizers of armies, they're actually attracted to David, which shows us something about David, and the author wants us to notice that David attracts leaders. He attracted whole units of people, and they came to his side because it was the right thing to do. God was on his side. And, and we see this group of guys is especially unique in that regard. Here's another group that joined David, which shows this building morale and returning to Israel. Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them and answered them and said, and answered and said to them, If you've come peacefully to, to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if but if to betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. We get just this little mini story showing us David's admission policy. What is it what it, what does it take to join the, the team? And what does that look like? And, and coming from Benjamin, there might be some suspicion there that these are people that are siding with Saul. They're Benjaminites. And David doesn't seem to hold that against him. He really has only one criteria. Are you here in peace or are you united with my enemies? And those two things become a distinction. And I don't think that distinction has left the people of God since. We still have that distinction. If you're coming in peace, welcome to the family. And if you're not coming in peace, Welcome to the family and let God deal with you. Because it doesn't say that, that David kicked them out or made a distinction. He just says, if you're here, my heart's united with you. We're on the same team. But if you're here to betray me, it doesn't say that my heart's against you. It doesn't say that I'll kill you or I'll get you. It says, if, if, if I've done nothing wrong, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. There's a trust that we don't have to judge because God does that. We can just be open and welcoming. And David exhibits that, this idea of um, if you're here sincerely, then welcome in. And if you're not here sincerely, then God's going to deal with you. It's not a diswelcome as the opposite. It's God's going to deal with you as the opposite. So it's diplomatic, it's graceful, and it's David. We're getting these glimpses into who David was. Essentially, they got an open door until they do something hurtful to the family. And there's a trust in God that that's going to get revealed. So the nation is building itself. David doesn't recruit. 
He doesn't send out flyers. People just hear about what's going on and they just want to come on their own account. And they're anxious to do it. And frankly, if you look at like a commute, crossing the Jordan in the spring to hang out with the people of God, that's probably the worst commute in history to go hang out with the people of God. But they're going to get there through war or high water. They're going to hang out with David and they're going to get there. And these Benjaminites, they come in peace. And then in verse 18, the response is pretty nifty too. Then the spirit came upon, literally the word there is clothed. The spirit clothed them. Then the spirit came upon Amas, Amasai, the chief of the captains, and he said, We are yours, o, yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace be to you, and peace to your helpers, for God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troop. I love this. Spirit came upon him. The way we sometimes know and can connect with other people of God is there's, there's just a clothing of the spirit of God on people. And even though these people should have been like not trusted, even though they came out of the same tribe as Saul and they had everything to gain by Saul being king, they come to David and the reason here is very clear. It's because God helps David and God's with David. So they're going to be where God is. That's it. It's just that easy. Even though he's living in a Philistine town right now and he's, li he's living in a, in a not so great situation. Amasai in the Hebrew is burdensome. And he, become, he could be a real burden to David if David let him be a burden. But instead, he said, the guy recognizes that God helps you. And really, this is a uniting of Israel early on, even after the division of Israel. That's an important point. So we see this, the division between Saul and David happening, yet there's a unity that's happening at the same time, and God's with one group and not with the other. Allegiance then, according to Chronicles, isn't about your tribe. It's about who you're submitting to spiritually. And so this is a significant shift. And they've been learning this lesson over 70 years in Babylon. As they gather together their histories, that's one of the things they want to point out. That unity comes from our belief in God and who, who God is with. So to say, we are yours, O David, is to submit to David's leadership. To say we're on your side, O son of Jesse, is to admit the blessing that's on Jesse's family. And then they say peace three times. Peace, peace, peace. Peace in general, peace to you, David, and peace to your helpers, the mighty men that are with him. And so the peace, peace, peace is just kind of code for peace, I guess. <laughs> Babylonians, when they look at Israel, they don't see Benjaminites. They don't see Judeans. They see Israelites. They see Jews. The enemy, when he looks at the kingdom of God, doesn't see the same distinctions that we do in the kingdom of God. We see this kind of person, that kind of person, whatever, but outside in the world, they just see church people. And that can work for the church, and it can also work against the church. And Babylonians, in this case, I think, don't delineate like the Hebrews are delineating between these tribes. And the chronicler is trying to kind of show that. So David received them, and he made them captains of the truth. Not only did troops, not only did he not trust them, he took leaders and he put them into leadership positions. This is a chief of captains, and at the end, they submit to David and he makes them captains. So it's not like David's got like a personal pride thing. It's not like he's going to try to like position himself and make these people submit and show humility. He's not that kind of leader. He's like, you guys are leaders, be leaders and do what you need to do. So there's no names listed here. I don't think that's the point of the narrative. It's not like Chronicles doesn't know how to list names. 
But in this particular part, there's no names being listed. It's just this idea of submitting to David's leadership, and then David uses that leadership to put them right back where they were and put them into position only under the right order of things. Then in verse 19, we get some from Manasseh. They defected to David. Who are they defecting from? Saul. So Saul's army is shrinking while David's army is growing. David doesn't have to fight Saul. He has to win the moral spiritual battle. And in doing that, the troop sizes are shifting day by day. And David, So they defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul, but they did not help them, for the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, he may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. So this is in 1 Samuel 27. You get the whole story. They liked using David for these raids and bringing money into the Philistine empire. They didn't really trust him to go to battle against his countrymen, probably for good reason. I don't know that David knew what he was going to do in this situation, but he had sworn loyalty to this Philistine king. uh, And then he says, you guys need to go home. Thank goodness, because they come home just in time to realize that the Amalekites had been raiding in the south. So they're sent back. They go deal with that. Verse 20, And when he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh who defected with him were Adnah, Josabad, Jedaziel, more names, captains of the thousands who were from Manasseh. This is a large group of people. If you put even a thousand with each of these names, David's getting a significant army. Ziklag's growing into a significant town. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains in the army. And at that time they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. It's not the army of Israel. It's the army of God. God builds armies. God gathers people. So Manasseh just shows up at just the right time, just the right place. And they help in just the right time for David to continue to do this. There's two ways to build an army. And I, and I think this is important for Israel to know this. You either build an army by conscripting people, forcing people to be in the army, or you build an army because you have a purposed enlistment or a voluntary army. And so you have conscription or voluntary. And it's interesting to see as the Hebrews move on that they... They respect the differences between these two kinds of armies. Oddly enough, today, Israel actually has forced mandatory participation in the army. Yet, you look at countries like ours, and we've actually gone to voluntary participation in the army. So it's interesting to see how those two models get used throughout history. I don't know if they mean anything, but the fact that they're in this old of a text shows that that understanding was existing and understood at this time. So people just join the army. He doesn't force anybody. David's army at Hebron includes all 12 tribes. Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. God said this would happen. It's happening. Because David, God had ordained David, God was calling them back and God was gathering these people. So we just got three examples of people feeling led to join David. You know, they cross rivers, they defect from armies, they show up at the right time, and they come from all these different places because Israel's more than tribes. And they're never going to go back to tribes historically after Chronicles is written. This really does alter their mentality. They recognize the tribes are there, but they're Israel, they don't split again. Even unto today, we don't see north and south Israel. We see Israel. And they act together. So verse 24 has Judah, verse 25 has Simeon, verse 26 has Levi. 
Then you get Jehoiada, the leader of the Aaronites. That's the priestly division under, you know, descendants of Aaron. Um, and with him were 3,700, implying that the priests had fighting units and they fought in the army. Uh, 28, Zadok, he's noted here. Um, Zadok's going to be the high priest when David is king. He's a young man, a valiant warrior. And from his father's house, 22 captains. And then 29 has the Benjaminites. To 30 has the Ephraimites, 31 Manasseh, you can kind of count the tribes, 32 Issachar, 33 Zebulon, 34 Naphtali, Danites in 35, Asherites in 36, and then last but not least are the rugged Reubenites and Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh in verse 37. From the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed for battle with every kind of weapon for war. This is the kind of army that the Assyrians had. This kind of army could conquer the known world at this point in history. Massive army. The Levites are listed there. They have fighters listed. There is no Jewish prohibition against people of the faith or people of the cloth serving in the military. When there are bad guys uh, attacking their homes, they are going to pick up arms and fight for those homes. So understanding the times. There's a few things in this passage that I, I kind of skipped over. We've had valor, valor, valor with the mighty men. In this chapter, we get three more features that define a godly Israelite. The first one is the, the Issachar, who had an understanding of the times. It's an interesting turn of phrase, I think. A compliment for Issachar is that they're learned, they're tuned in, and they know what's going on. And this, I think as believers sometimes, there are people in the church, and I don't know that everybody would be defined this way, but there are people that have an understanding of their times. They get where they're at, they get what's happening historically, and they understand it in context. And in doing that, they become an invaluable part of the army. So this understanding, and then the piece they give right after that is that they know what they ought to do. And what they ought to do is join David. Because God's with David, so they join David. So it's easier, I think, sometimes for us as believers to just put on blinders or to echo other people we hear, but to be people of understanding ourselves and to dig into things on our own takes time, work, and resolve. And to respect people who put in that time is a good thing for us to do. And hopefully we have some of those people that are among us. Then there's the second one here that's, that there's stout-hearted men, verse 33. Stout-hearted men, single-hearted, undivided, loyal to David. They don't have competing interests. Literally, stout-hearted means to not have a double heart. What does it mean to have two hearts? Well, you have these things you love, but they conflict or they compete with these other things you love. You're double-hearted. In the New Testament, it's called double-mindedness. The Old Testament, they do it this way. James says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave driven by the sea, tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And I think a lot like people with understanding, you have some people in the body that just have that kind of understanding, and they're a blessing. You also have some people in the body that are stout-hearted. They don't have division in their heart. They don't have concerns over here and concerns over here. They've got one concern. They're single-minded. They're stout-hearted. And they're a blessing to the body, too. They're a gift. And they're, they're reliable people. You know they'll be there. You know they're there because they want to be there. That's joyfully. And you know that they're stable and they're solid. And these people are an absolute blessing. 
it becomes difficult to serve God when you're serving other people too. And it becomes difficult to do ministry when your head is in five different places. And this quality of being stout-hearted is one to aspire to. And it's good. Here's the keeping ranks. What does it mean to be a man who keeps ranks? Verse 33. If you keep ranks, the idea in military in the ancient world is that when guys got scared or they thought we were going to lose, untrained soldiers would break ranks. They would just run for the hills trying to save their own life. So in breaking ranks is really an act of selfishness because you think I'm going to preserve my life before I stand here and protect my neighbor. And my best shot of getting through this is to just run. So trained soldiers were ones that would, would keep the ranks. They would stay in line. And that was the best chance you actually have in a battle formation is to stay in formation. Don't go off and run and do your own thing. Because all that's going to happen is now you're isolated and you have to deal with this hostile world. So it becomes difficult enough to build an army or a kingdom. It becomes even more difficult when you have people that break rank when you're trying to do it. You can't really be on the battlefield long if people just do whatever they please. So there is this idea that the self-serving soldier is less valuable than the one who keeps ranks and can be a blessing to the people next to them. To hold ground. So 30 united soldiers can decimate 300 untrained soldiers because the 30 men work together against 300 individual people. There's just a, 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 it's usually the united coordinated men that don't break ranks that win battles. That actually hasn't changed a bit. People knowing their position, what they're supposed to do and doing their job, despite their own personal safety, create effective military units they always have. And I think that's an interesting image, too, of just the kingdom of God. People that are faithful and they don't break ranks and you know they got your back, those are the people you want next to you in the church and in the ministry and in anything else you're doing in life. Stout-hearted, they know their times, won't break ranks. They're on track. Verse 38, all of these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart, there's both terms there, to make David king over all Israel, and the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David the king. So there's all three traits in one verse. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near them from as far away as Issachar and Zeblon and Naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes and figs and cakes of raisins. I like how they give the actual menu. Wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. You know what the cool thing about the Israelite army is? They got this army of over 100,000 people, and their thought is, let's have a giant feast. That's what we're going to do with our military power, is we're going to use it and have this awesome feast. Why? Because there's joy in Israel. And I, unity isn't just good for war. Unity is good for kingdoms. It's good for people. And so you get this giant massive potluck, this feast that they have. It's taken se seven years since the death of Saul for Israel to come together. But Chronicles skips all of that. All that mess that they went through for seven years. And Chronicles is just like Israel came together. There's a feast. That's it. That's the story. There was joy in Israel. What brought the joy in Israel? Not, not, no mention of beating enemies. There's no mention of a battle that happened here. So why are they so joyful? They're joyful because, verse 38, they know how to keep ranks. They know how to serve and not fight. And part of that service is bringing food. 
And even the people where it was an inconvenient, like these people far away in verse 40, even though it was inconvenient, they got it done anyways. And sometimes service means inconveniencing yourself. Maybe it means get, making a journey with some donkeys and camels and getting things done. So they know the calling. They know David's there. They have loyal hearts, verse 38. They want to have God's king on the throne, and they trust and believe that's the best thing for themselves. And in the same way in the church, we want to, we, we're, we're loyal in the idea that we all want Jesus on the throne, and we're going to do what it takes to get him there and put him there in other people's lives and help him to be the king of our life too. So they accept the king that God has provided. They want to make David king. And then this idea of one mind. They want to be of one mind. They're not bickering. They're not pushing. They're not striving against each other. They're not trying to one-up each other or be better than other people. They're not trying to be right all the time. They're of one mind. They know what they're doing. They know why they're doing it. We saw in the last chapter, they have different personality traits. They have different qualities, but they all have one king and one goal. And they believe that they're doing that for the love of their God. Verse 40, moreover, those who were near them. The party just grows and the supplies keep pouring in. And I like the fact that their brethren had prepared. So there's also this group of unnamed people that have prepared for this feast. So you just got done listing the soldiers and it's like, but your brothers and sisters, brethren, have made this feast for you. They've put it all together. We're going to celebrate as a nation. So the, the coronation of David is a big deal. And their one singular goal is let's have a feast. The provisions come in. Everybody's pitching in. Everybody helps out. Frankly, that model works for 20 people as well as it does for 100,000 people. If everybody pitches in, the numbers don't matter anymore. And from God's perspective, the numbers don't matter because he expects that kind of generosity and provision. Everybody just pitches in and they do what they can and it actually works out. And then there's joy in Israel. This is how to live. This is the ideal that the chronicler is pointing out. They receive their king and celebrate that, that Israel is at its best at this moment in history, right now. They're feasting together. There's no tribal lines. They're coming from all over. There, there's the, the priests getting ready to serve in the temple. They're doing their job. Everybody's committed to God and to each other. And the painting the chronicles pitch right here is that there's just no division between them. And that's not to say there wasn't division. It's to say that there wasn't enough to put into the history books. It was not of note. And that's why Israel gets established. That's why it's formed. And the chronicler is showing us this is the united giving and joyful feasting of the people of Israel. This is Israel at its best. This is what we want sometime again. So Nehemiah and Ezra are leading this movement out of Babylon, and they're showing everybody that's coming, this is us at our best. United, on one page, no tribes. We don't secure kingdoms with plots and plans. We secure kingdoms by having a feast together. And it's not how the world operates, but it's how we're going to operate. In that, we find partners, we find friends. Jesus fills up the congregation or the kingdom. And all we want is Jesus on the throne, and then there's joy in the kingdom, there's joy in the church. It's how it works. It's always how it's worked. Chapter 13, then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. This is a leader that steps in, and he's simply getting to know his troops. These are, they're kind of strangers. Like, he's grown quickly. He's got his 30 mighty men, his, like, tight group, but this is, like, the extended group. And he consults with them. So David starts his reign by gathering information, by talking, by consulting. 
He does this with all the leaders. He just forgets one consultation. He doesn't consult with God. And this is where he runs into trouble in, in chapter 13. David um, consults with humans, but he doesn't take the time to consult with God. So there's a giant oops that's coming in this chapter. We should be aware of that. Verse 2. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it's of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us, and let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at all since the days of Saul. And then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now this is not to say, like the motive here is good. We want God to be back at the center. Let's put God back at the center of our country. Saul forgot this, and he fell because he wasn't faithful. So there's nothing wrong with the idea of saying, let's put God back in the middle. What's wrong here is they're going to do it their way. And so you have a good activity being done in a human way, and the end result is people are going to get killed. And so this is a really tough, I think this is a mature Christian chapter to understand that sometimes something that's really, really good isn't necessarily God. And there's a difference, because we can do things we know are good things, like putting the ark back in the temple. That's not bad, but there's a way to do it that God has prescribed, and because God has prescribed a way, we need to tune into it and pay attention to it, and ignorance is no excuse for the law. So he gathers all the assembly. This makes this David's first act as a king, according to the writer. All future kings should learn from this. That's why they're writing it. They, they learn to seek the Lord, that even David, the best king out there, fails when he doesn't seek the Lord. And Chronicles is just going to tell us that narrative on every single king. Did they pay attention to the Lord or didn't they? And they're going to show that the rise and fall of kings has everything to do with faithfulness, doing it God's way. All that follow are blessed, all that fail to are not. And that's the, that's the division of the kings. So if it seems good to you, hey, what do you think? I actually kind of like this. If he would have consulted with God for David to come before the people saying, hey, I got an idea. What do you all think of this? And to throw it out to these leaders not only values their opinion, but David puts himself on an equal level with these captains saying, just because I have an idea doesn't mean it's a good one. And I, I, frankly, I think that's the way to do things. Those who are left, an indication of how successful the Philistines were. They've been, Philistines were attempting to wipe out Israel. They wanted to get rid of them. So when David says, let us send out to our brethren who are left in the land of Israel, under Saul, they'd almost disappeared. And it says, we haven't inquired of the Lord. That's not like, that's an odd thing to say. They, they can inquire to the Lord whenever they want. The ark is just a box and we know that. But it is a reminder of God's faithfulness. And God did promise during this era that his presence would go with this ark. And we saw that happen with the Philistines. And we see that happen in this chapter too. They're forgetting that God had talked to humans about how to handle this ark. And they're thinking, well, the Philistines threw this thing on a cart and moved it. None of the Philistines got killed. So we can just throw it on a cart and move it. And so they're setting the standard for God's people based on how the world does things. And where God has mercy on the Philistines, they don't know any better. He's not going to have mercy on the Jewish people who do know better. So they don't have that excuse. It says the ark of our God. Uh, this is a 400-year-old box at this point. It's gold-plated. It's covered with a mercy seat. It contains the tablets that have the law. 
the jar of manna that God fed them in the desert, and it has Aaron's rod in it. So there's an image of the law, there's an image of provision, there's an image of the priesthood in this ark, all covered with a lid called the mercy seat. So having this at the center is good, how they go about it is not. Verse 5, so David gathered all Israel together from Sihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirith-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala and to Kirith-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord of the Lord. There the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. So the writer tells us a little bit about the ark there. Significance is pretty clear. They want to put God at the center and recognize this as David's first act as a king is to put God back in the middle. The language emphasizes how sacred and how precious the ark is. We can't miss that point. And this idea of God dwelling between the cherubim. Yeah, he dwells there, but he also dwells everywhere. He's omnipresent. But this is a place where in the Old Testament, the spirit of God is promised between the cherubim of mercy. And in the New Testament, the spirit of God is promised where God's people gather in the church in mercy. And so these become an image of what's going to happen too. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Aho to drive the cart. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it made me laugh just saying Aho. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing and on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, with trumpets. We get this long list of instruments. The goal is good, but then they add the human plan to it, right? And this is where they start to go awry, right? Nothing wrong with the mission, but in, in, his, in Exodus 25, it says, you shall put staves into the rings by the sides of the ark that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. In numbers, they should use a veil and cover the ark with a veil so people don't look upon it with their eyes. Then they're supposed to put badger skins over it to cover it from rain and elements. And then they're supposed to put a blue cloth over it. So the law is then a burden that can't be passed off to a cart. It can't be given to animals. Carrying the ark is supposed to be a burden, numbers four, for the priests that are assigned to carry it, the, the, Kohath, or the, the core Kohathites, right? So the humans don't do this. They don't, they don't wear, bear the weight. Here's the thing. If the ark is an image of the law, the burden of that law is on humanity. It's not on animals. So the way they're doing this is they're messing up the imagery that God commanded. Do it God's way because it means something. The image is significant. We bear the weight of the law. Specifically, the priests assigned to teach the law, they put that weight on their shoulders, and you don't conveniently move the ark by handing that off to oxen. And you don't touch it. You put those, those rods through the rings so that nobody touches the ark. It's separated and consecrated apart from humanity. The law is from God. It's not from humans. And so there's this idea that they can think that it was done this way. They can even, it even says they put it on a new cart. So they dressed up the cart. They made it fancy. It's a brand new spanking luxury four-door power roof, moon roof cart. Like we got a fancy cart. But I don't think God cares about how fancy the cart is. And he never really has. Acting like the world isn't acceptable. Acting fancy just to make it fancy isn't acceptable. 
They give their best. They put their best foot forward. They make a shiny new cart for it, probably got it, you know, on 0% down, but they miss the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is they're supposed to carry this burden. Uza means strong. Aho means friendly. It's Ahio. I know, I get that. But neither strength or charisma is going to make this situation any better at all. In fact, human strength and human friendliness is not what makes godliness. They're good attributes, but they're not God's call for us. So Israel plays music. Then we get this list of instruments. Some people list this and look at how Israel praised the Lord, but this is not the right story to pull that from. Pull from David or something like that, but don't pull from this one because in this particular one, the concert is not helping them either. And this is a concert. Make no mistake, with this list of instruments, this is like a music festival. It's energetic. It's emotional. They got the smoke machines going. They got a light, good light show happening. Probably dimmed the lights down a little bit. But they've added this fanciness onto a poor foundation. They're not following the law. So dressing up this worship isn't helping them a bit. Elaboration without carrying the weight of the law is false religion. And it might look really good and sound really good. And the musicians were probably better than Grant. Maybe. I don't know. But this is what I think where humans often screw things up with God. We think that if we make it elaborate, we make it new and shiny, we add great music to it, we do all these things that make us emotionally happy, that we're actually satisfying what God's asked of us in the first place. Which is usually a lot less elaborate. It's big, shiny, and friendly, and strong, and ornate, but it's not what God commands. They've missed the basics. And the basics are super easy. It's not like doing it God's way would be harder. It would actually be probably be harder for the priests, but it would be really no different from the rest of the people. This is why these images that God has commanded are handled so specifically in the Bible. Because God wanted this image. He wanted to move it forward. Worship is a big deal. Cain and Abel, their way of presenting sacrifices to the Lord, one was accepted, one was not. It was a big deal. It led to murder. Nadab and Abihu started doing their own thing with the incense of funky smokes. And in Leviticus 10, he dropped them both dead instantly. So when God intervenes and he does it harsh, it's often when the people of God put in big elaborate efforts to add something to what God's asked for for worship yet missed the point of what worship is. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament thing. They come and they're giving an offering to the church, but they're lying about it. And Peter calls them on it and they drop dead right on the spot. And what happens is people start to fear the Lord. Okay, what did we do wrong there? Because we thought we were making God happy, but God knows the heart. He knows that you're really just making yourself happy. The worship of God, as joyful and wonderful as it is, it's also pretty serious business. It's something God has claimed, and he owns it before you even offer it. We give worship to God because it's his due. He deserves our worship, and he has asked for it in a particular way. So it's done God's way, or it's not. At, at, at best, God doesn't hear it or accept it. At worst, he actually starts bringing immediate consequences to people because the image of worship has to stay intact for God's people. So... Read back through this whole chapter so far. And while I'm talking, you can kind of glance through it. Ask yourself, do you see any humility in their great, wonderful work they're doing for the Lord? Do you see any repentance from sin? 
anywhere in the chapter. Do you see any regard for the covenant that they made with God? And I'd venture to say that that's nowhere in the narrative. It all looks really good to the eye when you first read it because we're humans. And here's the last one. Do you see any love? Is there anywhere in there where it expresses that they just had a love for God? And God asks for those things, humility, repentance, the covenant relationship, and love. And when we come before God and we're singing songs on a Sunday morning or we're studying his word, these are acts of worship. When we pray together, that's an act of worship. And we do it because we love the Lord. And any other reason really falls short. We don't do it out of habit or obligation. We do it because we love the Lord, we love each other, and we do it before the reasons he's told us to. Verse 8 says they played music before God, but they're not praising God. There's no awe or fear or worship. They're just, in that sense, making noise. New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13.1. You guys know what I'm going to quote here. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You're just annoying elementary school drum set. Right? That's all you are to God. And no matter how pretty you think you make it sound, it's nothing to God if it's not done in love. So if our, if our goal is to please God, we have to first seek his will to do it his way, with his truth, with his plan. That's what we do when we love people. We do things that make them happy. So a love for God starts with understanding what his word says about worship. And then we avoid the temptation that these folks are falling into, which is to do what's right in our own eyes. Even with the right end goal, the process isn't right. And that becomes a major stumbling block for the people of God throughout all of human history. Yeah, we're going to do this the right way, but then we do it the wrong way. We do it our way. So it's not about pleasing us, it's about pleasing God, and to do that purely, we do it his way. So moving the ark as we see fit is like trying to move the church as we see fit. It's a danger, and it's a dead end spiritually to do things the way you think you should do them and not do them the way God's clearly done. And that said, I just want to say this, because I like big productions, like we're going to go to a music festival in August. I think big productions are great. This isn't a commentary on that. It's the motivation behind the big production that has to be the right foundation. And when that foundation's there, you can move hearts and souls, and thousands of people can bring glory to the Lord in those activities. But if they're not done in the right place, they're not done right. It's called presumption. It's a sin. In that sense, I read this really seriously. I'd rather leave the ark in where it was than to move it and have people get hurt. And I think that's a true principle, right? I'd rather not do anything in the ministry and, and not have people get hurt than to do the wrong thing and have people get hurt or to do the thing that I think looks right, but it's really not God's leading that's doing that. It's my leading or yours. I'd prefer that our fellowship remain just like it is for 20 years if we're blessed by it in the name of the Lord and the Holy Spirit's moving and discipling and training. I'm also open that if God moves us in a direction or a place, I want to jump there. And I think most of you have the same heart. If God's moving, we're in it. And there's just that acceptance of we're going to follow what the Lord has. Verse 9, and when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, <laughs> it's interesting. They actually do this for a while. God doesn't instantly stop it. Make note of verse 9 that they actually did transport the ark quite a distance. They actually get about halfway. Uh, and, and I think this is God in mercy waiting for them to realize they're doing it wrong or not feeling that joy of the Spirit. Um, but the location and the intervention of where God does act is important. He acts on a threshing floor. 
So a threshing floor is a key element in sacrificial law, Deuteronomy. Go back to Deuteronomy if you want to hear why that threshing floor is important. In the New Testament, it gets used as an image of where the wheat gets separated from the chaff. This is where God separates the good from the bad. And the threshing floor, we have lots of waste that gets removed from the grain at, on the threshing floor. And that's what God's doing right here. The other piece with the threshing floor is that oxen that are hungry, that have been moving an ark for so many miles, will go by a threshing floor and they'll think, mmm, yummy. And you're not supposed to deny that oxen a little grain when they're hungry and they're trying to work. So Uzzah puts, or they, they come up to this threshing floor and Uzzah puts out his hand to hold the ark because the ox stumbled. Another word for stumbled could be that they went off track or they didn't work with their partner. Something happened where the oxen maybe was either going for grain or just tripped on a rock or something like that. And the two oxen get a little wonky and then the ark starts to tip a little bit. And then verse 10, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. So they're doing it the wrong way. God isn't exactly thrilled to start with. And then Uzzah breaks another law and he puts his hand on that ark and he touches it. And now it's gone a little too far. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? Like, he knows the mission is good. And, and, and I think that this is, in the church, we know that bringing more people into the kingdom, that that's good. We know that evangelism's good. We know that worship's good. We know that teaching of the word is good. And you're just like, well, how do we do this then, Lord? If we're not blessing it, what's going on? Uzzah's likely not thinking at all. He, he, at some point, he's trying to keep the ark from falling down. So he, again, that's not a... Well, why is that so wrong? Why is that so bad? Because he's made bad decision after bad decision, and then suddenly he breaks the law doing what he thinks is right. And this is human deception. We go so far down this path of thinking we're doing something right, but then it brings us to a moment of crisis, and we make the wrong decision in the moment because we've been leading up to it for so long. He reacts and he does what he think is right. Don't let the ark fall in the mud. There's no record that the ark actually falls in the mud, even though he's dead. And he breaks the law. Here's the law, Numbers 4, verse 15. As the camp is set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, the ark. Uzzah and Aho are not sons of Kohath. But, and God doesn't kill them. for I mean, He's having a lot of mercy here. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. So... When God says that in Numbers 4.15, he's made a promise, right? I want Kohathites to transport it. There's non-Kohathites transporting it. He's letting that go. There's no promise of this. But when it says don't touch them lest they die, he's made a promise. If you cross this line, I'll kill you. So they cross the line and God keeps his promise. Notice that there's no mention of any issues with the ark. There's an issue with the oxen. So it's the things of the world that are the problem and it trips up the things of God. The image here is that God doesn't need humans to hold up the law. He doesn't need Uzzah's help to maintain what he wants. In fact, the ark kind of defended itself with the Philistines in a few stories ago. So David becomes angry. The word there is grieved. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's not that he's mad at God. It's that he's confused. He's upset. Actual grieving, like Uzzah's died. Uzzah was probably a friend of David's because he gave him this great honor of moving the ark. So it seems that David's a little frustrated because he's thinking, I thought it was so good. I thought this mission that we had was so amazing, yet everything's going wrong with the mission. 
even to people getting hurt. And there's this anxiety, this grieving, this sense of like, God, I thought we were doing what you wanted. Why is nothing working? Why is this so harmful? And there's an, an honest outpouring of David. And, and David's a guy that wears his heart on his sleeve. God wants our hearts and our actions to be aligned with him and his law. Period. So good intentions don't do it. They just lead to harm sometimes. So David starts out with this. He later confesses that this was a sin for him to get upset because David realizes he was supposed to actually read the book before he made these decisions. So it's not God, it's David's foolishness that leads to this. Perez Uzzah actually means outburst against Uzzah. It's left as a warning, a warning, a memorial, a place to remember, to check the word before you do God's work. Verse 12, David was afraid of God. This is the result of God's discipline and God's punishments. At the end of the day, we're scared of God. And that's not a bad thing. When you're if I'm an ant and I'm just hanging out on my ant hill and an ant eater comes around, or worse yet, like a guy with Roundup and he's got things that kill ants, it would be worthy of the ant being fearful of the thing that clearly has the power to destroy him. And God gives life and he takes life away. He's so much larger than we are, it is reasonable for us to be fearful of a being that can end us in a second, just like he ended Uzzah. And that idea that when we breathe, we breathe because he's allowing us to have the next breath. It's a good way to know that he's got a calling for your life as if you're still breathing. And if you're still breathing, God's got something he wants you doing. So David doesn't need to fear God. He should fear his own sin. But the fear of God is a healthy and a good thing in this situation. If God allows this, then they would have to just be figuring out what makes them feel good forever. But the fact that God stops this forces them to return to the word of God. Missing the whole point of worship has a tolerance level for God, but there's a point at which he cuts it off and he ends it. Worship done right is a blessing. Worship done wrong is just a waste of time. And God himself is going to bless Obed-Edom. This is where the ark's going to sit. Kirith-Jerim was blessed when it sat there. It's not that the ark doesn't give blessing. The ark, everywhere it resides except Philistine territory, <laughs> it gives total blessing to the people that keep it and hold it, as does God's worship. It's a complete blessing. Done wrong, it can be a war it's a warning thing that we should be very careful how we handle what God has asked us for. So the question should be, okay, how do we honor God? And how do we do this right? How do we do it in such a way that's there? So those that brazenly proclaim their opinions of worship maybe should stop and think about what worship should be versus what their opinion of worship should be. Do you see the difference? And as humans, sometimes we want to say, here's what I think it should look like. Here's what I should think it should be. And that's called presumption. You're just assuming that what you think worship should be matters. But what we should be looking at very carefully is, what does God want of our worship and what does that look like? So David learns this and he writes in Psalm 19, verse 13, keep back thy servant from presumptions and let them not have dominion over me, lest there, then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. David does see this as a major issue and it is because somebody died. So fear gives us pause and it gets us to ask the same question David does here. He says, how can I? How can I do this? Friends, if you're a believer asking the question, how can I do this? 
you're in the right place. That's exactly where God wants our heart. Lord, what do you want of me? And if you're pursuing God the way he wants you to, there's a humility in that question that's really important. God, what do you want of me? How can I serve? What should I do to worship you and honor you? And if you're, if you're, you're asking that question, you're pursuing the right God, you're reading the right book, and you have the right family around you right now, because I think we all ask that question. Lord, how do you want me to do this? Not my will, but yours. So David's first work as a king is to learn this lesson. He needs to learn how. And so does Israel's Israel, right? They're coming out of Babylon, a totally non-Israelite, non-Hebrew culture. And that question becomes relevant for the readers of this text too. How do you do it God's way? And Ezra and Nehemiah, they don't screw this up. They do go back to the word. One of my favorite passages is them having everybody in the kingdom gather together to read through the Torah. And they teach everyone what the Torah says. They don't make this mistake and they write a book that reflects that. We're doing Luke right now. When Mary is told that Jesus is coming, do you notice the question she asks is the same one David is? How can that be? She asks the how, not the why, not the what, not the I need to know like Zacharias. She asks, how can it be? How can I do this? How is this going to happen? And that question as a believer becomes, I think, our most important question. Lord, how do you want me to do this? I know what's right. I know what's good. I look at the world around me. I see people hurting. I see people broken. I see problems. I just need you to know, how can I do this, Lord? And we ask that question until God gives us answers and he shows us a way. But we just keep asking, Lord, how can I contribute? How can I cease things? How can I help with things? How can I bring worship to you? And how can I invite you closer into my life? Because I know that every one of those other problems gets resolved if I do the things you've asked me to do. And that's the best I can do to resolving those things. So David, made, they're having this major party. It's a bummer when somebody dies in the middle of the party. That usually ends the party. So they're celebrating, the music's going, and then Uzzah drops dead, parties stops, Everything's over, and all of these people stop. And verse 13, so David would not move the ark with him into the city of David. Party's over, we're done, we're not moving the ark. All right? So they take it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. What do you think David's doing for three months? He's going back to the scriptures. He's going to his priest. He's like, hey, Zadok. Figure this out for me. Show me how this works. What are we supposed, What did we do wrong there? And I bet they went right back to the passages we read where it says, don't touch the ark. And they're like, oh, God said it. He put it right in his word, what we should do and what we should not do. So that it goes to Obed-Edom and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Again, God's not a curse. He's a blessing. But handled the wrong way, we put ourselves against God's word and there's consequences for that. So David puts a pause on it. He waits. When things aren't going the right way, stop pushing. And there's a great lesson in David's leadership here. If you're going in a certain direction and it's not working, be, wet, be soft enough of heart to stop and be humble enough to change directions. Learn from what you do. Strong implication that David's already reading God's word here. The ark, the responsibility of the Kohathite priests. We should note from 1 Chronicles 26.4, that Obed-Edom is of the Levite and he happens to be a Kohathite from the family of Korah. So the fact that they detour and put it in a Kohathite's house tells me that Dan, probably David's already reading the scriptures 
And he probably got as far as Deuteronomy, and it's like, oops, it's supposed to be Kohathites that handle the ark. Let's just put it to the closest Kohathite house we can find. And then you get, and then it says here that it's Obed-Edom the Gittite. Well, how could it be possible that he's a Gittite and he's a Levite? Because Levites served in all the different cities. So you could be both a Levite and a Bethlehemite. That, that uh, being in Bethlehem doesn't mean you're of the tribe of Benjamin. It means you're living in Bethlehem. So to be a Gittite means that he's a Levite serving it in the closest possible city to be putting it here. So he's checking it. He's immediately by putting it Oben Edom's house, David is now respecting what the law says about who handles it. And Obed Edom is like, he just won the lottery. He now has God and God's promised presence. And God blesses that house to show the blessing that he's ready to pour out on Israel if they do it the right way if they can get it to Jerusalem. Three months' time looking to the word of God for guidance before moving. I think that's patience. For any king to say, let's put a pause on my plans for three months, we just don't see that kind of restraint from ancient world kings. They usually make a command and they want it done yesterday. But for David, he's like, let's figure this out. Let's do it right. Nobody else gets hurt because we're doing it the wrong way. And the Lord blesses them. And we're going to see that David comes back and he does it the right way. And there is absolute blessing across the land. What are the writers trying to do? Do it the wrong way and there's problems. Do it the right way and there's blessings. They're making this super simple binary argument in the book of Chronicles. And we're going to see it for first and second Chronicles. There is a blessing when we do God's thing God's way. But when we don't do it God's way, we're not helping represent to the world what it should look like. And therefore, there's no blessing in it whatsoever. Worst case scenario, we misrepresent God and we misrepresent the things he wants us showing off. We're ambassadors. We're only good ambassadors if we represent our king. And we represent our king to the world the way he wants to be represented. And in that, we'll wrap up for tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for David. We thank you for the leader that can gather leaders, the leader that attracts leaders, uh, the leader that brings in both ruffians and disciples them up, but also brings in people of quality, talent, and ability, and he builds a kingdom as those people come together. We thank you, Lord, that they could work in unity. We thank you that they could gather together. We thank you that they put God first and they wanted to do it your way. Um, Lord, we thank you that in messing that up and in screwing that up, that they turned back to the word of God. They looked for what you'd already put in writing and then they obeyed it and they see it. Lord, we just thank you for the lesson. We thank you for King David. Can't wait to meet him. Can't wait to spend time with him. Uh, what a guy. And what a, what a man of, of just honor and one who loves you and seeks after your heart. And Lord, we thank you for the, the family of Obed-Edom that took in the ark and did it despite the fact somebody had just gotten killed around it. Kind of a dangerous thing to have around the house. So we thank you for that family and what they did and the way they ministered to the body. Lord, we thank you for the lessons we can learn from this. And, and Lord, sometimes we look at your word and we think how this might relate or, or, or relate to our lives and what we're doing. All I know is this, Lord, just as a body, we just want to ask you how you want to be served by us. How would you have it done? And what most honors you in our lives as we go out into the world tomorrow and we live our lives this week? How can we be representatives of your kingdom to others? In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.